Hi, my name's Ernie Bass. I serve here alongside with my wife, Donna. We're involved in the prayer ministry, uh, Tuesday night prayer meetings that occur and a lot of the prayer that happens in the prayer room here. As well, uh, we help to shepherd an Ohana life group and maybe you guys have seen me out there honking the horns and waving everybody in the golf cart ministry, which is the coolest ministry, by the way. Today's uh, message today comes from uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 21. So if you could open up your apps right now or open up your scripture right now, your Bibles. If not, it'll be up on the screen um, for you to follow. Okay. If, Ephesians 5, 15 through 21. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise making the best use of your time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Ernie. Appreciate that, man. Good morning, guys. Uh, when I was in college up in San Luis Obispo years ago, I lived in a big house with a bunch of Christian guys. And on, it was on the corner of a, a major road in town. Uh, I don't know if you know Madonna Road up there, but that's where we lived. And one summer night, just my roommate and I were home. You know, it's, it's uh, uh, summer, so there's not a lot of classes in session and um, not a lot of parties going on. It's, it's pretty quiet in San Luis Obispo over the summer. Uh, but around 2.30 a.m. on this hot summer night, I had my, my window open. And 2.30 a.m., I hear the sound out the window of flip-flops dragging and slapping along the sidewalk, getting closer and closer to my bedroom window. This is really unusual. You don't hear this in my neighborhood. And so I'm, I'm kind of on alert, listening to this sound, and it gets close to my window, it gets close to my front door, and then it stops. And I hear my front doorknob click and turn, and the front door opens up. Oh boy, there's somebody in our house right now. So I wake up my roommate, Tim, we're in bunk beds, go, damn, damn, there's somebody in our room right now. So we jump out of bed, we open the, closet door and, and grab a pool cue and a baseball bat. That's just what we had in there. And so we go uh, exploring around the house, flip on all the lights. It's the middle of the night. It was pitch black. And so we're, you know, looking in the bathroom and the garage and the living room and all of everybody's bedrooms and trying to check everywhere to see who's in the house right now. What happened? We don't see anything, which is kind of worse, right? <laughs> like, where, where is this person? So we, we're scratching our heads a little bit, a little nervous, ready for somebody to pop out of some corner we forgot to look in, you know? And we end up making our way towards the backyard. Maybe there's somebody, maybe you went through and, and they're back in the, in the backyard. So we, we pull open the sliding glass door, flip on that back porch light. And then there we see, sitting in our lawn furniture, this guy kind of slumped over, like a fratty looking dude in khaki shorts and a, and a popped pink polo. Big, you know, droopy eyes, just looking at the ground with a big, empty beer mug in his hand. And we said, dude, what are you doing? What's, what's your name? What's your name? And he can't answer. He's just looking at the ground. What's your name? We eventually get Todd. His name's Todd. And he said, what are you doing, Todd? Why are you, why are you here? Do you need help? What's going on? 
this, this is Stephanie's house. No, it's not. <laughs> this is Stephanie's house, and I'm here for the party. He just kept saying this over and over. It's like, this is not Stephanie's house. There's no party. Just want to go back to bed. Do you need a riot or something? Like, what, can, can, how do we get you out of here? You know? Todd was just totally lost. He had no idea where he was, no idea how to uh, get where he wanted to go. He was barely able to engage and interact with people. He was totally incapable of making any kind of wise decision. And according to Ephesians 5, the passage we just read, this happened because Todd had filled himself with fake spirit and was totally surrendered to it. And then he went looking for a gathering of people doing that same thing. And this led him astray into foolishness, into this embarrassing situation, leaving him just feeling lost and confused in my backyard. And both Todd and today's passage teach us Christians that what fills us is what influences us. What we fill ourselves with is going to lead us, direct us, nudge us in some way. When we fill ourselves with fake spirituality, we're going to wander in foolishness. But when we are filled with the real spirit of God, we can walk under his influence in wisdom and in worship. When we're filled with the true Holy Spirit, we can walk in wisdom. We've seen that that word walk is a really important one in Ephesians, right? In chapter 2, we saw that it, we used to walk in our sin. We used to follow Satan and the way of the world. And now instead, because we're saved, we need to walk in the good works that God has prepared for us. That's chapter 2. Chapter 4 tells us about walking, that we need to walk like we're worthy of our calling, the calling that God has placed on our lives. Don't walk in futility and purposelessness anymore. And now in chapter 5, we saw last week, we're supposed to walk in love and in light. Now today, we walk in wisdom. It's a big theme throughout Ephesians. And we, we know that by now, walking is just another way to say live. It's our conduct, our decisions. It's how we relate to people. It's our purchases. It's our lifestyle, decisions and actions. It's a pretty straightforward idea. But today's passage tells us specifically to walk in wisdom. And wisdom has a little bit of a unique flavor in Ephesians. It's, it gets its meaning, its sense from uh, elsewhere in Ephesians. And it means more than just practical advice. It's not just common sense. It's not just good decision making. It has a specific, uh, a specific idea attached to it. Ephesians 1, early on, it tells us that wisdom is about understanding God's plan for salvation in Christ. Later in Ephesians 1, it's that wisdom is about understanding God's redemptive work in Christ. In Ephesians 3, wisdom is about revealing the mystery of the gospel through Christ. So wisdom in Ephesians has everything to do with Jesus. We should see that. Walking in wisdom, then, is walking in Christ and in the result of his death and his resurrection. In the illuminating, empowering love and guidance given to us from God. The thing that enables us to follow the one who walked among us who died and rose for foolish people like me, like all of us, once lost, walking blindly in the dark. And so in this context, walking wisely means that we are applying our knowledge of the gospel, of Jesus in all that we do and think and feel and how we speak and act. It all needs to be in, a, in response to being saved by Jesus. It means we shape our priorities and our decisions around the person and work of Christ. So walking in wisdom means we, we get all that. We see it. We hear it. We realize it. We know it and believe it. And we think about it and study it. We sing it and shout it. We proclaim it and we point to it. 
We express it and embody it. We experience loss for it. We embrace awkwardness for it. We suffer for it. And we are even willing to die for the name, the work, the call of Jesus Christ. Amen? That's what it means to walk in wisdom. And when the Spirit fills us, we are able to do exactly that. It's so important that we nail that part down because this is the how and the why for everything that we're going to talk about today. When the Spirit of God fills us, we can walk in wisdom. Let's start to look for that in verses 15 to 18. If you want to look back down at your Bibles or up on the screen, uh, that's fine. But let's, let's start at verse 15. Read along with me. <clears throat> look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the, Lord, what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. <clears throat> You're probably seeing a little bit of contrast there between two separate you know, categories or ideas. There's a fake spirituality that we can fill ourselves with and be influenced by and walk, wander in. And then there's also this good and pure and genuine Holy Spirit that wants to fill us and influence us and lead us in a different way of living. You can look at it like this in this chart we'll put up. It says, don't walk unwisely or be foolish or drunk. Instead, walk wisely. Use your time well. Know what God's will is for your life and, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. These are three parallel sets of statements that compound into one complete idea saying this. Just like wisdom is the opposite of foolishness, so is being filled with the Spirit the opposite of being filled with alcohol. Why alcohol? Why is this passage picking on that? Well, we talked about this a little last week. The historical backdrop of Ephesians is this worship of a Greek god named Dionysus, the god of wine. And to worship this God, people would get drunk and then engage in all kinds of inappropriate and immoral behavior with groups of people doing the same thing. And it was a way to kind of give control of yourself over to this God. To say, inspire me. And in some, some cases, even possess me. It was a totally evil, absolutely dark, drunk, no joke, demonic mess. That's what that is. It's just complete foolishness. It's anti wisdom. And nowadays, people like Todd in our story may not have that same name, Dionysus, for the God that they're worshiping when they drink or take any kind of conscious, altering, mind-influencing substance. But actually, if you think about it, grocery stores and liquor stores do, huh? We, a lot of us drove by one on 190th on the way to church. Uh, it's on the top of their sign above their store. It says wine and spirits. That's not an accident. That idea spirit comes from the manufacturing, the distilling process of alcohol, but also the idea that alcohol is often used in pursuit of a, of a spiritual-ish type experience, some release, some getaway, some, some way to, to escape. It's like a counterfeit, knockoff, false spirit. It's like a liquid God in a bottle that asks, give me your $11.99 and then I will take over. I'll tell you where to go. I'll influence you and lead you. I'll tell you how to walk. And friends, if we, if we know that the real spirit is God himself and he is the only one who ought to govern us and guide us, then what should we do with alcohol? If alcohol also is something that can change our behavior, if it can influence our decisions, how should we think about and handle alcohol and drinking? 
Well, let's explore a couple questions today to sort that out, and maybe, maybe we can find some shape for our own convictions and practices in regards to alcohol. The first question I think we should work through is, why are we drinking in the first place? Why do I drink? If you asked a room full of people that question, I bet you'd get a variety of responses. And some people would say, uh, real casually, my friends drink, my coworkers drink, and it's just a way to connect with them, you know? Some people would say, I just like it, it's relaxing, no big deal. Some would say, I know it's legal, I'm of age, I know my limits, I would never drive on this, so I'm feel free to do it in moderation, you know? Or maybe you're here today, you're underage, and drinking for you is a way to rebel, to push back against mom and dad, or a way to look cool and fit in with that one pocket of friends that you really want to be a part of at school. Or maybe it's a way for you to chase after this sense of freedom that you just wish you had. Other people might say, that's the thing that helps me to take the edge off of a rough day. Some would say, that's what I use to drop my guard and really be myself, you know? Some people would use it to take their mind off of just terrible memories, stressful situations. And some people would say, I really, actually, I do need it. I don't know how I'd function without this stuff. Whatever our reason, I want us to hear that Ephesians 5 is is responding, saying we don't actually need it because we already have the real thing. That alcohol is not what gets us through those evil days that it says we're in. It's not actually the thing that resolves those difficult feelings or helps us to process uh, really heavy thoughts or, or, or solve problems. We often look to it to, to make us become something else than we normally are because maybe, maybe I don't like myself very much. I like how I am at parties. But friends, alcohol never leads you to love you yourself like God loves you. It neglects the new creation that God has made you to be. It ignores the identity that he has clothed you with in Christ. And the point of this is not to condemn anybody for their reasons. This is simply trying to show that alcohol falls short and it just can't do God's job. This is to remember that God is truly the only one who cares for you and sees that pain that you might be medicating with alcohol and wants to offer you something so much better. He tells us in Ephesians 1 that he's given us every spiritual resource, the first fruits of heaven, to decompress from hard days, to work through difficult problems, and to engage social tensions and anxieties, and to process feelings, and to be the real you that is found in Christ, not lost in deception and darkness from being drunk. What fills us influences us, and that is incredibly important. So when we're about to fill ourselves with this, let's, let's ask, why am I doing that? And, and should I, could I be depending on God's influence in this situation instead? That's the first question I want to encourage us to ask about alcohol. The second one would be, how could drinking impact our ministry or witness? We all know what DUI stands for, driving under the influence And we know that can result in fines and probation and losing your license and serious penalties because in in those, if you're driving under the influence, you're not in control. We're not thinking clearly. And and it puts you in this high probability that you're going to hurt, even kill somebody when you drive under the influence. You know, when I was a kid, the very first memorial service I ever remember going to was for the mother of this family. 
uh, that we were friends with in our church on the Central Coast. Two boys, a sweet little girl, and the mom was on her way back from the grocery store, actually just driving by our church, and she was killed by a drunk driver. That's the first memorial service I ever remember. In that same season of life, my own grandfather, I had two alcoholic grandfathers, and they, they wrecked their families in different ways, but this one in particular was, was driving drunk north of Santa Barbara one afternoon and just destroyed himself. He broke his neck. Remember, it exploded his arm, and he had these football-looking stitches there, just all swollen and nasty. He was, he was a mess, and he moved in with us. And so he's sleeping in our, he's laying in our guest room. He can't move. I remember him just being in tears with remorse for what he had done, for taking this big handle of a white wine in the car with him that day and totaling everything. So dangerous. You can do major damage while driving under the influence When you let alcohol take the wheel and decide where you go, people can die. And the same is true, I mean this, in our walk as Christians. How how am I going to evangelize? How am I going to guide people to life in Christ and function as the church when we are under the influence of alcohol? Something that could lead to taking life. How am I going to serve on Sunday morning if I'm getting trashed on Saturday night? How are you going to show your neighbor what it looks like to live a life transformed by Jesus when we're sloppy, drunk, yelling out of the backyard and stumbling down the driveway? You think, too, for for a second about what your spiritual gifts might be. How has God uniquely designed and equipped you for redemptive influence to serve his purposes in mission? Maybe it's encouragement or faith, or maybe it's teaching or administrating or giving or healing or helping. And when you use those gifts, you exercise those gifts, you're realizing the presence and the activity of God in and through you. The Holy Spirit is the one driving that. That is invigorating and satisfying and joyful. It's good and right, and that's the sweet spot where you and I can be effective and useful and helpful to the body of believers around us. We can't do that under the influence of alcohol. Let me give you an example. I've been in a ministry setting I was on a team uh, years ago, sadly, where a, a team member was coming to meetings, uh, borderline drunk. You could smell it on her. She was, you know, she'd slur her words. <clears throat> we loved her, and, and I don't mean to, to speak down about her. Uh, just an example. The congregation trusted us to administrate some pretty high-dollar facility Im- improvements and projects, make some costly decisions that we really needed to make, and we wanted to do that. It's a serious work. We wanted to do that under the influence of the Spirit with a lot of prayer and letting God lead all of that. And this team member's stuckness or addiction to alcohol prevented her from getting her part done. She's an architect and we needed her plans, you know, and she couldn't do it. It it derailed the project. It set us back by months. And again, I don't want to condemn her. And we get it. I I really want to encourage us to, to look at people struggling through this type of challenge with deep compassion and care, with no superiority, that we are all the same, just different struggles, you know? And so we see this sister in her fears and her anxieties. She had unique stresses and wounds that she was trying to heal. She was just pursuing the wrong solution and a destructive one. And that hindered this team from accomplishing its goals. And people were asking us, hey, what's taking you guys so long? Come on. Tough position. Like verse 16 said, that was stopping us from making the best use of our time. 
We all loved her. She was a great sister in Christ. We gently, caringly broached this issue with her and said, how can we help you and walk with you through this? But she just never could, could really come to terms with the problem and, and ended up stepping away from the team. It was sad. And letting alcohol influence us compromises our influence in kingdom work, just like that. And it also robs the Holy Spirit of his influence over us. And so we need to ask ourselves, how is this drink impacting my ministry and witness every time we're considering it? That's the second question. Why do we drink? Does it impact ministry and witness? And the third one, a lot of us are probably pretty curious about is how much is too much? What's the threshold of drunkenness? How many drinks can you have before you're loose to tipsy, to just off the rails, out of control? I don't mean to disappoint, but I can't give you a number today. I can tell you it's probably lower than 10, you know? But I can't give you that number. That is an issue of personal conscience for you to prayerfully work out with the Lord and within your circle of Christian accountability. I mean that. Ask God Ask the brothers and sisters around you to speak into this. Maybe you're underage today. Maybe you're in recovery. Maybe you know that you're prone to addiction or you have seen alcohol destroy lives and break families apart and lead to terrible decisions. And so you're here today. You already know your answer to this question is zero. That's good. We're with you. But for others, maybe you're still kind of wondering what could be an acceptable amount what, what can I drink and still honor the Lord? Well, maybe, maybe to get there or to help us each draw our own lines, prayerfully, scripturally, uh, let's use this passage, turning each verse into a self-check question that might help us to, to know our limit. You know what I mean? Let's look at it this way. Verse 15 might ask us, how much can I drink but still be able to completely make wise, godly, Christ-centered decisions? Verse 16 would, would ask us, can I have one or two and then still be able to make the most of my time? Am I still useful to the Lord and to the church and to other people? Or am I now unable, checked out, of being able to drive that elderly woman to church? Am I just kind of half passed out on the couch, useless to my family, not ready at all to go help my neighbors and minister to the people God's put around me? Verse 17 would ask us, when I drink, when do I start to feel like I'm losing my filter? When am I speaking foolishness? Verse 18 would say, can I have a drink and still be composed on my A game and sharp and present, clear-headed, able to hear and obey the voice of the spirit who fills me? Verses 19 to 21 would say, hey, does this interfere in any way with your ability to meaningfully engage in corporate worship and prayerful gratitude? towards the Lord. Some of us have worked through all these questions a long time ago with really great resolve and, a, and a, hold a strong, clear conviction that the Lord has led you to be completely done with alcohol forever. Or maybe he's led some of you to, uh, to abstain, to fast in certain seasons or led you to, uh, to a particular expression of devotion to the Lord, like the Nazarite vow you might see in number six. You can read about that later. If that's you, we celebrate that. We honor that and support that. That's beautiful and good. But others may be think th may thinking through these questions and, and after doing that, I hope that we're able to conclude two things. One, that 
There are definitely times when alcohol is completely inappropriate, just a total hindrance. For example, like on mission trips, our code of conduct for missions teams here, we have, we have to sign off and say, I'm not going to use any substance or take any drinks on this trip. We're going to stay completely clean so that we can just focus on what God has called us to do. It's not appropriate to drink on a mission trip, compromise our influence and our witness. That's one. But two, we might also conclude after asking all these questions sincerely, prayerfully, that in some situations, there is a modest amount moderate amount that I know I can enjoy and still totally honor the Lord. Not just my opinion. I'm not just saying that out of my own, uh, my own thoughts. This is in the Bible. Let me give you a couple examples. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, drink a little bit of wine for your stomach. It's got some medicinal use. This will help you to feel better. Uh, John 2, Jesus turns water into wine at the wedding celebration. In the new, all throughout the New Testament, wine is a symbol of the new covenant that we have with Jesus, our relationship with the Lord, in other words. Wine is like a symbol of, of what inaugurated that. It's a, it's a symbol of Jesus' blood in the, the Lord's Supper and communion when we come to the Lord's table. It was as much a staple in the household as bread in Bible times. Wine and bread, it's, it's like they're, you know, peanut butter jelly kind of thing. So it is permissible. It is permissible for those with a clear conscience for those with the ability to refrain from drunkenness, for those willing to prayerfully ask the Lord, how much should I pour? When should I stop ordering? When, what is the right time and place for me to do this and what isn't, you know? So that we can still be considerate to other people, so that we can treat others as Jesus did, so that we can walk in his wisdom, preserve our witness and remain sensitive to the leadership of the Spirit. Asking all three of these questions is so crucial because we understand as believers that what fills us is what influences us. And so let's just not give, thoughtlessly give that control away to some counterfeit spirit, but let's be filled and led by the presence of God. Maybe you hear all of that, listening to all that, and, and you're feeling now like, maybe my ministry, my witness in my neighborhood has been a little bit compromised by that. Maybe I've not been taking this seriously enough. I've not really considered the spiritual implication or significance of drunkenness. Maybe I'm realizing there, there is a real dependence. I do need this too much. I, need to, I gotta break away from that now. If that's you, please know that you are not alone here. You have an incredible resource around you. This community, this body, this family filled with the spirit is inviting you to freedom and renewal, and peace. And so if you need prayer today, you want to let somebody know what's going on in you, the conviction God has placed in your heart because of this, come up to the front, to the side, the prayer room, uh, after service today. We want to care for you and support you in all that you're going through. Even as we worship in about you know, 10, 15 minutes from now, after the message, if you feel led to, to go up to somebody and ask for prayer, or maybe the other way around, you know what somebody's going through, and you want to put a hand on their shoulder and, and offer to pray for them and, and, and care for them, please absolutely feel free to do that. You're welcome to step aside to the walls, go where you need to go, and do that work. If you need something with more ongoing structure, uh, we are planning to launch Celebrate Recovery early next year. We're really looking forward to this. This is important. We know there's a, a major need for this. Uh, in just a few months uh, away, and our, our hope is that this is going to create opportunities to both receive and to give mutual ministry, the grace of Jesus in the context of Christian community, helping one another to work through all kinds of addictions. 
to remind and rehearse that truth that Jesus' redemptive work at the cross, his resurrection, his ascension, gives us the real Holy Spirit who releases us from the influence and control and enslavement to every kind of false spirit, amen? Turning us away from self-gratification to gratitude, turning us away from debauchery to deliverance, encouraging and showing one another how to live under that governing presence of God who dwells in and among us and who leads us in healing and restoration and newness of life. That's what the church is for. That's what the next part of this passage is going to tell us too. This whole first half of the text has been about alcohol and false spirituality and walking in foolishness and in darkness. And now the second part of this passage is going to show us what can and what should, what needs to happen when a group of people are filled by the Holy Spirit to walk in the wisdom of Jesus. So we're going to look at verses 18b through 21 and, and look for those four expressions or practices that demonstrate the influence of God's presence in our lives. Second half of 18 says this, be filled with the spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So there are five, really four, one of them is a combo uh, idea, expressions of being filled by the true spirit, addressing, singing, thanking, and submitting. We got to talk about grammar for a minute. All those things are participles. I know we've, we've been talking about that a lot. They're so important because they tell you how to do the main verb. The main instruction in this passage is be filled with the Spirit. We don't just stop there. It's not a state of being thing that you get to and then I don't do anything with it. Here is, here's what it looks like. Now that you're filled with the Spirit, go do these four things. Make sense? That's why these participles are so important. This is how we walk in the wisdom of Jesus, by being filled with his spirit, and then we externalize it with these four actions. And the first one is addressing. That's the same word in Greek for speaking or for saying or talking. Uh, And it tells us that we should be speaking psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That might initially sound like a strange idea, but if you look through the Bible uh, for how we could speak music to each other, you see in Deuteronomy 31 and 32 that Moses actually spoke the words of his song to Israel. That in 2 Samuel 22, David spoke his song to the Lord. Last Saturday in uh, the, the evening worship service, Lauren spoke to the church the words of scripture that one of our songs comes from. And so it's not actually that strange to, uh, to, to speak the God's praises to other people, but it's not restricted to that either. It doesn't mean we only speak instead of sing. It also means that our singing speaks to other people. Our singing speaks to the people around us. In other words, this is so cool, and I hope this is really empowering and encouraging. You are all a part of the preaching, teaching, proclamation ministry that happens at church on the weekends. Everybody has, it's not just this, you have a voice in that as well. What I mean by that is when we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs in church, we are, you are all announcing and proclaiming, reinforcing and reiterating God's truth to our church family. I love that. You might be wondering, as, as we do that, what, what are those psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? What's the difference between those three things? Honestly, not much. There's a lot of overlap. In general, uh, a psalm would kind of be a Jewish piece, a, a, a hymn would be like a Gentile 
thing and a song is kind of a catch-all phrase for everything, for all, all the music. But it can specifically also refer to uh, Holy Spirit-inspired spontaneous music like you might see in 1 Corinthians 14. And all three of these words are describing uh, the, our, our repertoire. It's saying that our music library as a church should have all kinds of scriptural and spiritual music and praise. And as we sing this spiritual music to the Lord, we know that the Holy Spirit is present and actively moving in and among us, leading us to worship the risen Christ, but also using our praise to teach and strengthen and move one another in this room with his truth. And so that's what addressing or speaking is all about. And I hope that this empowers each of us to take an active role when we come to church when we come together to sing. Let's never allow this to be a private or exclusively passive experience, but a gathering where each of us really does contribute and chip into the proclamation of God's truth. And so even if we don't feel like I have the best voice or I'm a little shy about raising my hands, I'm not sure if I want to do that, or I don't really know this song, I don't like it that much, please, please know your wholehearted singing, your clapping, your shouting amen, and your bowing your knees and your tears and your laughter, your hands lifted in surrender and praise, all of that is speaking to somebody else in this room. I mean, th- think for a second about the person who is here today, and, and maybe this is you, just with an unbelievable burden on your shoulder. You've gone through things in the past few days that you don't even want to talk about. What's on your heart is just crushingly heavy. You had a horrific week. You lost a loved one. You're in the middle of a a relational conflict that's just so excruciating and draining. I don't even want to be here. I don't want to sing. But I am. I'm trying, you know. That person needs to hear you. Your praise ministers to them. God can use your words, your song, your expression of worship. This is so beautiful to me. To get them up out of that pit, to lift their heart, to feed them, to to refresh their soul. And so because we care about that person, that heart, that story, and everything that they're going through, let's go church, let's sing. Let's really lean into this. Let's pour out our praises in this room when we come together as God's people. Not only does our singing speak to others in that way, but we can also speak to each other in ways that convey the content of our songs. So what I mean by that is when you're in your life group, when you're in a discipleship meeting, when you're at a dinner with friends, when your kids are having playdates with each other, when you're in cubicle conversations with other believers at work, I want to encourage us to have rich, substantive real conversation about spiritual issues, cut through the small talk and get to the good part and speak that same truth that we are singing today. What I mean is let's talk about the gospel and the freedom and the joy that we have in Christ, about how you're experiencing the goodness and the love, the care of Jesus in your life, how his grace has covered your shame and washed your guilt away. We can speak the really good stuff that we sing And that's another way that we address one another. That's the first mark of being a spirit-filled Christian and church. The second one is singing and making melody to the Lord from your heart. 
Those are two participles combining into one idea saying that musical worship comes from the same place where God's spirit fills us. That's our inner self, our heart, spirit, soul. God pours himself into there when we confess that Jesus is Savior and King. And out of that place comes praise, enthusiastic, joyful, unified song about Christ and to Christ. And this is so cool. It adds to the previous idea of addressing one another to tell us that our worship is, yes, horizontal. It's certainly vertical as well. It is to the Lord, but it is also for the edification of the people who are sitting next to us. And all of that comes out of our heart, out of the spirit, where we are filled by the Holy Spirit to praise our Lord. That's the second expression of spirit-filledness. The third way that we show we are under the spirit's influence is thanking and our gratitude. I personally am really bad at writing thank you notes. If any of my relatives are watching or listening right now, I just want to thank you quickly for the last four decades of gifts. And I'm sorry that I probably didn't write you a note. I am truly thankful. I don't want to come off as ungrateful. I'm just, I'm pretty bad at remembering that and doing it on time and send me a Christmas gift. I might send you a letter in June, you know, it's terrible. I need to do a better job of that, of articulating thanks, because that is one of the key marks of spirit-filled Christians. We can all grow in our gratitude in some way to the Lord. Of course, we want to thank God for the stuff that we like, the good things, getting a bonus at work and our food and health and family and having a home, of course, but we can also Thank God for the stuff that sometimes we don't like. I bet each of us has a challenge, a stressor, a difficult circumstance that we're going through right now. And I know it's hard to be thankful for anything in those moments. But the Spirit's influence can actually move us to be grateful for what God will teach us and how he will stretch our capacity, which is a good thing. How he's going to equip us in a special way. How he's going to strengthen us and help us to depend on him reshaping us through those bad days and those hard relationships and our loss and our pain and our exhaustion. Being filled with the Holy Spirit means we can thank God even for the the most uncomfortable, annoying, draining seasons and situations. This doesn't mean we need to be happy, bubbly, fake, sunshine Christians all the time. I'm not saying that. certainly doesn't mean we thank God for evil, you know, but we We can have bad days. It's okay to be frustrated. You can be sad, free to grieve and mourn and still be grateful to God. We go through all those difficult feelings, sadness and grief, not ever by filling ourselves with substance, by drinking or pills or vaping, but with spirit-led gratitude and hope and joy, knowing that God is using those problems, those feelings, that suffering to play out his will in and through your life. And that posture of gratitude prepares us for this fourth and final mark of the Spirit's influence, which is submitting. Submitting in verse 21. Quick structural note, verse 21 is the hinge between our section today and the section next week that we'll talk about, about household relationships. Some of your Bibles, depending on your translation, uh, this is important, attach it to that household section. It doesn't belong there. Structurally, grammatically, it's with our thing that we're talking about today. It's the fourth expression of spirit-filledness, and you can tell in Greek that it belongs to that verb, an imperative of being filled by the Spirit. I want us to know that, prepare us for our study next week. And so that is calling us to mutual submission, a consideration of one another, selflessness, and looking out for the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, if you've ever tried to get onto the 405 in that morning commute window or the rush hour heading home after work, you know how hard it can be to merge 
and get where you need to go when other people are only looking in one direction. It's like, I know they can see me right now, but they're intentionally not making eye contact because then they'll feel obligated to like slow down and make space. You know what I'm talking about? We see this every day in LA. Closing that gap in front of them to kind of keep you out so that I can get ahead. It's tough. So whether we're getting on ourselves or whether we're letting somebody else on, let's consider the needs of people around us. Anticipate and accommodate Meet needs and be hospitable and thoughtful and patient. Sometimes we get out of the way. Sometimes we hurry up so that somebody else can have space. No matter what we're thinking, I'm, I'm willing to sacrifice this, my time, my agenda, my progress. I can set myself back a little bit so that you can get to work, so that you can pick up your kids, so that you can go eat, so that you can make your way to the emergency room, dealing with that terrible thing, that you're, that crisis that you're in at this moment because there's probably something going, something important going on in your life right now. I want to honor that. I want to yield for that. Set aside my needs for that. My preferences, my ideas, not just for those who are on the 405, but primarily for those who are in the church. That is characteristic of somebody who has been filled with the true spirit, who understands the will of God, who's walking in the wisdom of Jesus, who's consi- Jesus who considered our needs greater than his, so much so that he laid his life down for us. Philippians 2. The opposite of this, not submitting, not yielding to each other, has the same effect as alcohol would on the driveway, doesn't it? It's destructive. Merging onto the 405 drunk, you're going to hurt people and and cause damage. Non-submission creates chaos because it leads us to self-centeredness. Self-centered decisions which pull us in different directions and arrogance and harshness and impatience and rigidity on non-critical issues and stubbornness about things that maybe don't matter that much. All of that can hurt our unity as a church. Demanding our own way can hinder us from walking forward together in wisdom and reverence of our Lord Jesus. So let's submit to one another by demoting our needs and promoting the needs of others. Valuing their needs and devaluing ours. What would that look like, specifically, concretely? Let's look at it this way. Maybe I'm thinking about myself too much. It's all me, me, me. Or maybe I just love my own opinions and I don't care what you think, you know? I just want to talk about my own stuff. Maybe we think, I'm, just, I'm coming to church and I think, I'm not getting fed enough. Mm. Maybe we're not super disciplined about interrupting and we just constantly are talking over people and exerting that me first, you know, presence in our conversations. Maybe we're taking advantage of every opportunity to self-promote, make ourselves look great when we should be encouraging and talking up, supporting other people. So instead of that, let's try to submit or yield by the Spirit's power and influence by thinking about other people more than ourselves, By giving serious consideration to the ideas and the positions and the convictions of other Christians. We need to hear that. Maybe we do need to keep getting fed, of course, But maybe it's time for us to help somebody else to to really be nourished by the word of the Lord. Think about them, what they need. Maybe if we're constantly interrupting and talking over people and dominating conversations, we need to revisit Proverbs and James and those passages that help us to tame our tongue and challenge us to think before we speak, to talk less. And what that does is make space for other people to share what's important to them and and process the the discoveries they're making about Jesus and how the Lord is shining new light on on different parts of the gospel in their lives. And when we make space for that, that kind of stuff can happen. 
If we're just stuck in self-promotion mode, really defensive, let's make a habit of talking other people up. Every time we have a chance to pump ourselves, how about instead we pump the brakes a little bit and pull back and find ways to let that other person move forward and be encouraged and elevated and lifted up. You know, this idea of submitting is definitely intended for the gathered church primarily, but I think we can also put it on display uh, when we're dispersed. I think it matters the, ne- the next six days of the week. And what I mean by that is that in, in the workplace, you know, if you're in a secular environment, but you've got other Christians in your work group, and your management circle, your sphere of influence, or any kind of coworkers, serve them. Put some extra effort and time into that. You can take the intern out to lunch. You can help the people who are supposed to be helping you can go out of your way to support the new hire when maybe nobody else is. Make a point to demonstrate this instruction of mutual submission even in those environments. If you're a tenured teacher or professor, treat those TAs with a lot of respect. If you're a doctor or a nurse who's real experienced and you've got medics and and, and new doctors and nurses coming in to do their clinicals and residencies and stuff like that, take care of them, you know? Be a resource to those, to those new workers. Never haze the new recruits. Take them out to, uh, to, to a meal or coffee and, and let them share their stories and their struggles with you. Try to make their on-ramp experience better, more peaceful, healthier than yours was. This is so important because those actions bear tremendous evangelistic witness. This is the kind of stuff, that's what I mean by this, this is the kind of stuff that helps us to earn relational credibility so that we can be positioned to share the gospel in those places. When we're investing in this strengthening, the growth, the betterment of others, we're contributing to this culture of humility and service that can reshape your group, your department, maybe even your whole company. And all of that definitely takes time. It might mean we sacrifice a little bit of our lunch break or we have to stay late a couple nights But if using your time in that way is investing in the kingdom, is advancing the gospel, shaping a Christ-influenced culture in your workplace, then you're doing exactly what verse 16 says, making the best use of it. So we can do that. Because we understand that the Spirit fills us, let's put his influence on display by submitting and yielding to one another. By speaking, by singing, by thanking in ways that encourage each other to walk in the wisdom of the Lord. I know that a lot of this message probably feels uh, real behaviorally focused. A lot of rules and instructions and things I'm supposed to do and not supposed to do. And so I want to be very clear about its connection to the gospel so that we can walk out of here in love and in grace and that we can go do this in resurrection power of Jesus, not in legalism or a sense of duty or guilt. And so please hear this, church. Brothers and sisters, family, the Holy Spirit of God himself is among us. We have that because Jesus reached out to us in our foolish wandering. He came to us in our darkness, in our lostness. He met us in our sin. He saw our need for forgiveness and for salvation and for direction and for light. And he gave his life for that. He rose, he ascended to heaven so that we could have his Holy Spirit and be filled with his illuminating, guiding presence. Have it been forgiven and saved upon trusting him, confessing that he is our savior and our king, that he is the one who not only rescued us, but he is the one who renews us and rules over us. 
that he is the one who indwells us and influences us for everything that he has called us to today. Because we understand that, because we understand this is who fills us, this is what he has graciously and powerfully accomplished, we can reject the influence of drunkenness, darkness, and evil, and instead be empowered to be a people who walk in ways that display the gospel, the good news of Jesus. We can be people who submit and make space for one another. We can be people who encourage and nourish each other in the songs that we sing, in the truth that we speak. And we can be people who praise and thank the Lord in every circumstance. All to the glory of our Father, by the work of his Son, Jesus, and through the filling of his Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for reaching out to us in our darkness and our lostness. We were just sitting there confused, unable to reach out to you, lost, no idea where we're going. You sent your son Jesus to walk among us, to live the life perfectly that we never could, to pay the price that we all owe you for our sin. And that Jesus went to the cross to die for us so that we might be forgiven, rose that we might have new life with you, went to heaven so that your spirit could be sent to empower us to walk with you in that wisdom, in that good news, in the person and the work of Jesus, our Savior and King. We don't deserve any of that, Lord. We thank you. So let us not take that for granted, Father. Help us to understand here, follow that call to walk in his wisdom, his life and death and resurrection by the gift of his Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we ask you for your help, for your leadership in obeying you and acknowledging your powerful presence in resisting temptation to pursue drunkenness or to seek substance for our healing, for relief. And instead, Lord, help us to depend on you alone so that we might speak and sing and submit and thank you in all things. Lord, we, we want to respond now to your word with all that you have put in our hearts, with a refreshed gratitude for what you've done in us, with a renewed conviction that you deserve all praise. So Lord, lead us in holiness. Guide our hearts in your wisdom. Help us to worship in reverence of Christ. And Lord, use all of this for the strengthening of your church. It's together in the name of Jesus. We hear you. We pray and we sing. Amen.